Good morning, everyone. Our reading this morning is from the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verses 8 through 20. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write that you see in a book and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The word of the Lord. One of the biggest mistakes we could possibly make about the book of Revelation is to think that it's only talking about the future. Yes, it has a lot to say about the future of the world, but one of the main purposes of the book of Revelation is to meet you in the middle of your life right now in the midst of, of all the pain and the suffering and the bewilderment, in the midst of the depression, the affliction, the hardship, the loss, and the grief, to meet you in the middle of all of that right now and to bring a power and a glory and a joy into your life that will enable you not just to endure those things, but to flourish in the midst of them. Would you be interested in something like that? Something to help you make way through life, 
Last week, we were saying that in order to make way through life, we have to make sense of life. One of the most universal and enduring ways that human beings make sense of life is we see life as a story. Whatever is happening, we want to fit everything that happens in our lives, we want to fit it into a story. It's kind of like this. How often have you ever gone to a movie and the movie begins right in the middle of some action without any context at all, and and you're just left wondering what in the world is going on? Have you ever noticed how many times that happens at the beginning of a movie? Movie makers do that on purpose, It's a way of sucking us into the story because human beings can't process random, meaningless events. We're always trying to fit things into a story so that even though eventually the movie is going to fill in all of the details for us, it begins in the middle of some action without any context because that's a way of drawing us in and tapping on our deep human need to fit everything into a story. Do you ever wonder, what kind of a story am I in? Especially when life is messy or painful. Um, Because even though um, sometimes it feels like you're in the beginning of one of those movies where things are happening and you're trying to make sense of it, you're trying to figure out how does this make sense of the story. Sometimes life is like that, especially when things are messy or painful. One of the hardest things about pain and suffering is that when things like that happen, it doesn't feel like that's the way the story should be going. So, but just like uh, the movies fill in the details for us, the book of Revelation fills in the details for us by giving us a bigger story that helps us to make sense of the world that we're living in, especially when things are messy or painful. How does it do that? Let's find out this morning by seeing three things. We're going to see in this passage we just read, we're going to see the God of the story. We're going to see the God who tells us our story. And lastly, the God who's with us in the story. The God of the story, the God who tells us our story, and the God who's with us in the story. All right? First, we see the God of the story. Revelation begins with John. He was one of the 12 apostles of Jesus Christ. And um, in Revelation here, we see that he's been exiled into imprisonment on the island of Patmos because he was preaching the gospel. While he's there, he has a vision. He hears a voice, and when he turns around, what does he see? It's Jesus. But what a vision. He sees hair white as snow. He sees Uh, eyes like flaming fire, feet like burnished bronze, a voice like many waters. In his right hand, Jesus is holding seven stars. There's a sword coming out of his mouth and his face is shining like the sun in full strength. Now we're going to talk about some of those images in just a little bit, but here's what we need to know for right now. The book of Revelation is full of hundreds of references to the Old Testament. Many of the images in this vision are from other places in the Bible, like Ezekiel 1 or Daniel 7 or Daniel chapter 10. All of those visions are places where people had a vision of God. And yet here in Revelation, it's actually explicitly describing Jesus Christ. In fact, uh, the book of Revelation is, um, contains some of the strongest assertions of the full divinity of Jesus Christ that you will find anywhere in the Bible. But it's not just what we see in the vision. When Jesus says, I am the first and the last, in verse 17, he's picking up on something that God said earlier in verse 8. God said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. 
Alpha and Omega were the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. God is basically saying, I am the beginning and the end of all creation. I am the origin of history, and I am the fulfillment of history. Basically, God is saying, I am the author of the story of the whole cosmos. When Jesus says, I am the first and the last, he's taking God's claim to be the author of the story of everything, and he's saying, that's me. And I understand maybe some people would say, well, you know, he doesn't exactly say the same thing. God said Alpha and Omega. Jesus said the first and the last. Well, just to clear away any doubt or any confusion, at the very end of the book of Revelation, Jesus himself says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you want to understand the nature of the universe, if you want to understand the meaning of history, and if you want to find the meaning of your own life in the middle of all of that, the only place you can possibly do that is in me. I am the God of the story of everything. Friends, this was radical then, and it's still radical today. John was in exile on Patmos because the Roman Empire was a very pluralistic culture. It said, look, there are lots of different beliefs, lots of different gods, lots of competing truth claims, and that's fine. You're welcome to believe whatever you want as long as you also bow down and worship the emperor. The Christians wouldn't do that. They refused to acknowledge the authority Uh, of any other story, any other God, any other truth claim except for Jesus. You think about it and you realize that the world we live in is really not all that different from that. Our culture says, look, there are lots of different beliefs, lots of different gods, lots of different truth claims. Therefore, we should avoid having any one big story that claims to explain everything. Instead, We should recognize that all religions basically are teaching the same thing, and we should only accept as facts those things that can be known through science or reason. Friends, think about what that is. Modern secularism says, look, we shouldn't have any one big story. That's oppressive. Let's not have any big stories that claim to explain everything. Instead, when our culture says that all religions teach the same thing and that the only things that can be known are things that can be known through science or reason, understand that is an absolute totalizing truth claim that that claims to explain the nature of reality, including spiritual reality, that claims to explain the nature of humanity, and that explains what it means to live well as human beings in this world. You understand, that is not the absence of a big story. That is an alternate big story. Now, here's what this means for us. This means that the lure of this story is to to tempt us to believe that Christianity is just one of many interchangeable spiritualities that you can pick and choose and mix and match and customize to your own preferences. Because Over the last few decades, there really has been an explosion of interest in spirituality. People are spiritually thirsty, and that's a good thing. But understand, modern spirituality is really, it's like boutique spirituality. In other words, it doesn't matter what you pick as long as you find something that, quote, works for you. Because at the end of the day, our secular story would have us believe, really the only thing that matters is it's all about you and your own personal inner journey of discovering and then being true to your authentic self. In modern spirituality, the point really is all about you. 
that's where we're at. But, you know, if you're exploring faith this morning, if you're exploring Christianity, then we want to encourage you in that, and we especially want to be here to help you in that journey. But you're going to have to figure out for yourself whether or not you believe Christianity is true. Part of my job, however, is, is to help us all understand what Christianity is and what Christianity is not. One of the main things that Jesus is showing us in this vision is that he will not consent to simply be one story among many other equally viable stories. Jesus is saying that he is the author of the story. He is the point of the story. He is the God of the story. That means that you do not fit Jesus into your story you fit your life into his story. He's the God of the story. Now that leads to our second point. We've just seen the God of the story, but secondly, we, we see the God who tells us our story. Because remember what John saw when, when he met Jesus. He has this vision, he sees Jesus, and then it says that when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Now, the really amazing thing about this is that John says, as though dead, in other words, he's saying, when I saw Jesus, I should have died, but I didn't. I survived. Basically, what, what is John saying here? You know, if you think about it, remember what he saw. He had this vision of Jesus. Jesus is revealing himself in the glory and might of his full divinity. John is, is beholding a vision of the very face of God himself and surviving that's amazing because whenever someone encounters God in the Bible, God is constantly saying, no one can see my face and live. Beholding my glory and my might would kill you. And yet here's John, and even though he expects to die, it says that when he saw Jesus, that Jesus laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. D do you see the paradox in this? John is saying, I should have died. And yet Jesus touched me. He said, fear not. In other words, when you encounter this God, this is a God with whom there is both everything to fear and yet nothing to fear. This is a God with whom there is both a fatal danger and a gentle touch. How can both of those things be true? Here's how. We have to deal, we have to grapple with the reality of sin. Now, last week I mentioned that in our culture, the word sin really doesn't have much meaning, except perhaps to describe like a naughty indulgence, like, oh, I know I shouldn't have eaten that ice cream, but it was so sinfully delicious, something like that. But what is sin really? If you go back to the beginning of the Bible, uh, when God creates the world, uh, when he creates human beings, it says that he breathed the breath of life into their nostrils. Now picture that. The image there is face to face. That means that we were created to behold the face of God. We were created to find the, the fulfillment of all of our deepest longings in the face of God. In the beginning, there was nothing to fear. We were in perfect relationship with God. God was at the center of our lives. But in Genesis chapter 3, something happened. Instead of holding God at the center of the story, the first human beings made the story all about themselves. So instead of being God-centered, they became self-centered. Instead of the story being all about God, the story became all about self. Do you realize what's the root of all of our biggest problems in this world right now? For instance, where does racial division come from? 
Racial division exists because one race is incapable of making room in its story for other races. Or where does political division come from? Or economic division? Or a cultural division? It's self-centeredness, the inability to make room in our stories for other people. Whenever we make the story about ourselves, it inevitably leads to exclusion, oppression, injustice, and exploitation. If you think about it, you realize all of those things, we are like hyper aware of those things in our world right now, aren't we? Things like oppression and injustice are huge concerns in our world. We are very aware of those things. But if you think about it, you realize that Um, we already have a category, even though we're not using the word, we already have a category for thinking about sin. It's self-centeredness. Self-centeredness always uh, leads to uh, exclusion and oppression and injustice and exploitation. Because if you think about it now, you realize that the reason we do that with each other is because we do it with God first. That means that, that sin has distorted us so that now the default nature of human beings is we always want to make the story about ourselves. Friends, if that's the case, then you realize that to come into the presence of God is, 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 is incredibly dangerous for us now. You realize that if, if self-centeredness is the root problem that we have and that the reason we do it with each other is because we have already done that with God, that means that our modern cultural narrative that says the story really is all about you and your personal journey to discover and be true to your authentic self, that's just making our deepest problem worse because it encourages us to see everything in the story as being all about us, including God. And if that's the case, now what would it be like to come into the presence of this God? You know, when I was a kid and we would go out trick-or-treating for Halloween, um, the costumes we had back then were nothing like the costumes that they have today. I'm really rather jealous because the costumes today are amazing. I mean, we've got superhero costumes with like the muscles are built into the arms and there's like six packs built into the abs. The the costumes today are incredible. They are incredibly lifelike. But when I was a kid, the costumes that we had were like a cheap little polyester suit that tied on in the back and nothing ever fit quite right. We had these flimsy little masks that were tied on with a, 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 a wimpy little rubber band in the back that was always breaking. I mean, those costumes were a joke. Those costumes were not fooling anybody. Friends, to come into the presence of God is a little bit like showing up on a doorstep in one of those costumes, except the masks that we wear are masks of being a good person or being an accomplished person or being um, a, a, a cool person or being a smart person or a sacrificially generous person or a woke person or a patriotic person or whatever persona we adopt in order to help us feel good about ourselves. To come into the presence of God is to be unmasked and to be revealed for who we truly are. Because what did John see when he saw Jesus? He saw eyes flaming like fire That means that that when you look at Jesus, Jesus isn't just looking at you, he's looking into you and that his eyes are burning away all the chaff. John saw a sword coming out of Jesus's mouth. That means that Jesus doesn't just speak at you, his words dissect you. He reveals you 
He reveals to you who you really are. He, he tells you your story, the story that, that we know deep down in the depths of our being, but we're too afraid, too ashamed to ever bring out into the open. Jesus tells us that story. John says that his face was shining like the sun in full strength. You know, if, if you share the nature of the sun, then you can get as close as you want. There's, there's nothing to fear. But if you don't share the nature of the sun, then if you get too close, it will incinerate you. There's everything to fear. And yet, with this God, sin is never the end of the story. And that leads to our last point. We've seen the God of the story. We've just talked about the God who tells us our story. But lastly, we need to see the God who's with us in the story. Because remember what John saw. When, when he saw Jesus, he fell down as though dead, and then, but Jesus said, he said that Jesus laid his right hand on him and said, fear not. So think about what's happening there. This is a God with whom there's both a fatal danger, but yet a gentle touch. A God with whom there's everything to fear and yet nothing to fear. How can both of those things be true? Because if you think about it, you realize on the one hand, traditional conservative religion has a tendency to emphasize a God with whom there's everything to fear. It says, you better be good. You better obey all the rules. Otherwise, God is going to judge you in the future. On the other hand, modern progressive spirituality has a tendency to emphasize a God with whom there's nothing to fear. It says that sin is nothing more than a primitive holdover from a superstitious religious past and that there is no judgment day in the future. God just loves everybody regardless of how you live. And yet Jesus says, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades, literally the keys of death and hell. When Jesus says, I am the first and the last, he's saying, I am the God of the story. But think about what that means. What does it mean that Jesus is the first and the last, the beginning and the end of the story? Well, on the one hand, what's the beginning of the story? Perfect creation, perfect relationship with God? What's at the end of the story? According to Revelation and the rest of the Bible, the end of the story is renewed creation, renewed relationship with God. But what's in the middle of the story? Self-centeredness, sin, exclusion, oppression, injustice, exploitation. In the middle of the story, pain, suffering, evil are in the middle of the story. But Understand that if Jesus is both the beginning of the story and the end of the story, that means that Jesus is also the God of the middle of the story. Jesus is the God of the middle of the story as well. So that unlike traditional religion and unlike modern spirituality, the gospel tells us about the God of the story who comes into the middle of the story and that on the cross, Jesus suffered all of the effects of our sin so that we could enjoy all of the benefits of his love. That means that Jesus, instead of bringing the hand of judgment down on us, can give us a gentle touch and say, fear not, I died. I I have the keys of death and hell. I went to hell for you. I went into the ultimate furnace of judgment and suffered for you. Friends, do you realize what that does for you? If you're exploring faith this morning, this means that Jesus is not just some guru or a mascot or a personal assistant in your life. He's calling you to unconditional allegiance in your life to him. And if you're a Christian, that means the exact same thing. So that's why John says in this passage, he begins by saying, I, John, notice how he describes himself. 
He says, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. In other words, John is saying that when you become a Christian, you are welcomed into a kingdom, but it's a kingdom that is defined by both tribulation and affliction, but also patient endurance and, and, and endurance in the face of suffering. You realize that, that John is saying you know, that's what it means to be a Christian. Remember, he was in exile. He was suffering on the island of Patmos. But essentially, John is saying that to be a Christian, in some sense, means we are all on the island of Patmos. We're all in the furnace of suffering. How do we make it through that? John tells us, he says in the vision that he saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, that's Jesus, his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a fire. Now, we find out in just a little bit or a little later in the passage, that the lampstands are the church. It's an image for the church. But notice John says there are seven lampstands. Now, in the Bible, seven is the number of completeness. And we're going to see many other cases in Revelation where numbers uh, have incredible significance for us. But what this means is that John is just not only writing to churches that, uh, that were there in the ancient world at that time, when he says seven lampstands and seven churches, he's writing to all the church. He's writing to you and to me too. And, and, and what he's saying is that it, the only way we can make it through our furnaces of suffering are if we know that we have somebody who's walking in the middle of the suffering with us. Because in the ancient world, John was writing to Christians who were gonna be crucified and lit on fire. He's writing to Christians who are going to be literally thrown to lions. Are you in the middle of a furnace right now? Are you um, trying to make sense of your life, trying to make sense of the suffering that you're going through right now? John says, you need to know that there's someone who's with you in the middle of the suffering. That the only way you can make it through your furnace of suffering is, that, is by knowing that Jesus is the God of the story who's with you in the middle of the suffering. It says he walks in the midst of the lampstands. Jesus is with us in the middle of everything we're going through. And notice it says his feet were like bronze refined in a furnace. The reason Jesus can be with us in our furnace is because he already walked through the ultimate furnace and his feet are like burnished bronze. What is bronze? The significance of that is that bronze is a combination of both iron and copper. Iron is really, really strong, but it rusts. It doesn't last. It doesn't endure. Copper will not rust. It'll endure, but it's pliable. It, it's, it's, it, it doesn't, it's not strong. Bronze is a combination of the very best of both iron and copper. It's really, really strong, but it will last. John is saying that, that when you become a Christian, you have Jesus walking with you in the middle of the furnace of your suffering in order to make you like bronze, in order to make you somebody who can shine and make it all the way through. Or we could say it like this. Jesus is the God of the story who's with us in the middle so we can make it to the end. Jesus is the God of the story who's with us in the middle so we can make it to the end. Friends, Jesus is calling us to shine. He's the God who perished for us so that we could shine for him. You know, during the civil rights movement in 1961, there was a great preacher, uh, the Reverend Ben Gay, who preached a sermon to people who were going to suffer and even some of them were going to give their lives for the cause of racial equality here in America. But the image he used in that sermon was very striking. He said, everything shines by perishing. 
The sun is burning itself out at a rapid rate of speed. It's shining by perishing. Light a candle and it shines by perishing. You and me in this movement, if we're going to be a significant part, we have to shine. Friends, Jesus Christ is calling us to shine for him. Everything shines by perishing. But one of the ways we shine for Jesus is it means that sometimes we're gonna walk through the furnace. Sometimes we're gonna suffer. Sometimes it's gonna feel like we're in the beginning of one of those movies where things are happening and we're gonna be struggling to make sense of what's going on. We're gonna be struggling to to say, how does this all fit into the story? Friends, Jesus is the one who perished in the ultimate furnace for us so that we could shine all the more brilliantly for him. Are you in a furnace right now? Are you struggling to make sense of the story in which you find yourself in right now? Some of you aren't in the furnace right now, but you will be at some point in the future. Jesus is the God of the story who's with us in the middle so we could make it to the end. He perished in the ultimate furnace so that all of our little furnaces could simply help us to shine all the brighter for him. The more you know, the more you see, the more you experience Jesus perishing in the ultimate furnace for you, the more that enables you to shine in all your little furnaces for him, to shine for him to the world around you. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you have not left us alone in the middle of this story in the middle of the story with all the pain and the suffering and the evil. Father, we confess to you our own self-centeredness that the reason the middle of the story, the reason the world is so full of brokenness and evilness and pain and suffering is basically because of our self-centeredness that we want to make the story all about ourselves. Father, forgive us for that and help us, we pray, to see Jesus shining for us, shining in the furnace for us, going through the ultimate furnace for us so that we could become more like him, so that we could become strong and enduring like bronze, so that we could shine for Jesus. Help us to do that, we pray. Father, I pray especially that you would um, help all of us to see Jesus, the God of the story, who's with us in the middle so we could make it to the end. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name, amen.